what was he educated? I mean, did did he receive a a robust education? Did he read um, the classics? Was that all part of what was happening then? I don't get the impression he was overeducated, nor do I get the impression he was kind of, you know, um, uh, a sort of, you know, someone who fought shy of books. The thing is, with this period, we can't really determine unless we have an anecdote uh, about, you know, how much he loved to read. I mean, there's a, just, I've just finished a book on, on Anglo, the Anglo-Saxon. And um, in the case of um, the King Alfred, who has a contemporary account of his life written by a bishop, it, it never shuts up about his literacy. It talks about how he, he was illiterate as a child and he wanted to read and he learned to read and he was a really good reader. We have nothing like that for Edward I. In fact, in terms of pen portraits, we're entirely lacking. What we do have for the 13th century, thanks to the paranoia, if you like, of King John, is this kind of voluminous amount of, of official records. So we have all the kind of writs sent by his father and we have lots of financial accounts. Uh, so a, a huge mountain of, of, of parchment in the National Archives. Um, and from those from those letters, you can see um, that uh, Edward had books and he liked books and he he he, he owned books. Um, um, and he in, in some of his later letters, he makes reference kind of casual reference to one or two um, uh, figures from chivalric literature. So I think he probably, you know, he would he he. he probably read the sort of stuff, the Arthurian legends, the stuff that kind of men of his time and age uh, enjoyed. You don't get the impression that he was someone who was forever poring over manuscripts, looking for, um, uh, say, legal justifications for his actions. So he, got, he had other men who could do that for him. I mean, famously in, um, well, not entirely famously, but it's, it's a thing I like, when he went to war against the Scots or when he was... Um, trying to justify his overlordship of Scotland um, in the early 1290s. He just ordered all the monasteries in England to find the evidence uh, to justify his overlordship of Scotland. So he knew the power of the written word. But in terms of his education, I would say it was probably, you know, no different to your sort of average English prince or aristocrat of the 13th century. What, what were the um, causes of the edict of expulsion against um, England's Jews in um, 1290. It wasn't the large community. We're not talking about no. many people. I mean, in terms of what are the long-term causes, the, the root of it is kind of an anti-Semitism that goes back a couple of centuries. I mean, as far as we can determine, prior to the Norman Conquest of 1066, there were no Jewish communities in England. There is simply no record of it. Um, um, and the, the first evidence we have is a chronic clerk called William of Malmesbury writing in the 1120s, who says the first Jewish community set up in London came over as a result that were brought over from Normandy by William the Conqueror. So um, you have um, Jews living in English towns and cities from the late 11th century onwards. And it's something I've touched upon already because they were um, able to lend money at interest. They were extremely useful in the first instance to the crown. So when the king needed money, he could tap his Jewish subjects and sort of he had a kind of a parasitic relationship with them that he could kind of, um, you know, uh, just sort of, I'm not sure that's quite the right word, but I'm trying to describe the king as a parasite, obviously, not, not his Jewish subject. But he would sort of, you know, um, take money from them whenever he wanted. 
and in, in the knowledge that you know he might not have to pay it back or they could always make more money so he sort of he, he protected the jewish community the king but he also sort of um abused it if you like whenever he wanted by sort of saying well this you're my the, the, the jews were regarded rather like serfs although they might be prosperous um the king had power over them you could say eventually you're mine they were referred to as the king's jews so he could take their money whenever you know the occasion demanded um so that meant he had to protect them so they are simultaneously kind of exploited that's a better word than abused they were exploited by the king uh, but uh, because he wanted to protect them for his own purposes, they were protected. Um, and that's why they tended to sort of, these communities tended to be under the shadow of royal castles. So if there were any sort of stirrings of virulent anti-Semitism, they could kind of, they would be protected by the sheriff and kind of, you know, quickly taken inside the walls of a fortress. Um, so there's always this very sort of um, odd relationship from the first. Um, that they are, say, both protected and exploited. And um, it, uh, you know, there are occasions when it suits politicians or kings to, to whip up fury against minorities. Uh, we've already talked about crusades. Right. So there's all that background um, that explains um, why the Jews in medieval England were both considered necessary and, and regarded with the same sort of loathing that periodically spills out when people talk about... Um, financial institutions today or banks you know it's kind of like of course you have to have these but they can be the bad guys when you fall into financial difficulty if you overspend if you can't over, over uh, you can't repay your mortgage then it's the bank's fault you know so that that's why they they attract this kind of vitriol there's also um that can be that can be um I think that's for most people what it boils down to but that can be fanned and fed by theological issues so if the church uh says well you know these guys aren't so bad. They're wrong, but they prove they prove that we're right. That's kind of one kind of tolerant attitude to having Jewish communities living in your midst from Christian clerics in the Middle Ages. If the clergy uh, from kind of like the ships downwards start saying these guys are terrible and you shouldn't mix with them and you should make them wear badges, which is what happens in 13th century England. The, the, the expressions from the Christian clergy are increasingly anti-Semitic and virulent. Of course, that permeates down and it becomes not just the acceptable thing to do, but the right thing to do in the minds of the elite and by extension, the rest of the population. And you can see that going on uh, in, the, in the middle of the 13th century. Crusading um, rhetoric is a part of it. Um, but I think in general, it's just um, uh, scholars becoming uh, more persecuting and more intolerant of the minority in their midst. Um, and so that's the kind of the general background. I think in terms of Edward I, I think what really did for the Jewish community in England in Edward's reign in particular is, as you say, they were by that point a fairly small minority. And whereas when they were a big and prosperous community, the king felt it was in his interests to protect them because they were something he could draw, draw on for money. They are so run down by repeated taxation and persecution in the reign of his father that they are not worth saving simply from a, from a crude economic point of view in Edward I's reign. Um, and... What happens, and I've, I'm trying to remember the, this with some precision here, what happens with the edicts expulsion in 1290 is Edward seems to take a, a, a cue from his cousin, uh, the Count, I think it's the Count of Anjou, 
who expelled the Jews from his much smaller territory. But in exchange for doing that, his Christian subjects voted him a thank you tax, and which was quite substantial. And that's what Edward does with the expulsion. He, I think he has a couple of goes at challenging the Jews, and it, it produces very minimal results because they're so uh, you know, few in number and impoverished. So he gets maybe a couple of thousand pounds. What he gets from the expulsion is a national tax, which is the biggest tax ever raised in medieval England. Um, and this is where I'm slightly, um, I always kind of like have to say this when people say, oh, Edward I was a terrible anti-Semite, because I think it lets the English people at the time off the hook. Um, yes, Edward I was, was a terrible anti-Semite, as indeed were, as I've said, lots of bishops and knights, and it was, that was, it was the, the anti-Semitism of its age. What Edward was, was a very, very powerful king, who also happened to be uh, an anti-Semite, who needed money. So, and he was given a thank you tax, as I say, by the kind of the upstanding knights and burgesses of, of the parliament that he summoned, the biggest tax of the English Middle Ages. So whenever people say, oh, you know, what a bad man Edward I was, he expelled the Jews. It's kind of England expelled the Jews, you know, while Edward was king. Edward, yeah, Edward bears the responsibility for that. But he was cheered by his English subjects who were anti-Semitic from the first. Okay. Um... When, when, when you teach today... Um, oh, sorry, I don't teach. Let's get rid of that. that I'm sorry. Attention. No, I okay. don't. I, I, give, I, I talk in schools and I give public lectures, but um, I'd be misleading people if I said I was a teacher. Fine. So, so, so you, you, you give public lectures and, and you take students. I know you take them on, on tours and the castles. Um, what, what, what's, what's the... I don't know if this is the right, right word. What, what's the message that you try to convey? What are you trying to convey to young people today about British history, about these great and terrible figures from, 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 from the past? I don't know that there's any one message, you know, to take home. It depends on, the, I mean, if you say when I'm talking, when I'm going on tours, I'm talking about the architecture, and that's for most people what they're interested in. But right. you need to populate the architecture and explain financed, I mean, you know, the people who were doing it. I mean, one of the things that is going on in the UK in the moment is this ridiculous debate about um, uh, should we uh, should we know about the, the how the stately homes owned by the National Trust or English Heritage are funded? Should we know if they are funded by slave owners? And there's this kind of reactionary, no, 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 let us just enjoy them and look at them and have a cup of tea in them. And, right. and you know, it's kind of like this ridiculous notion that somehow to know less about the history, or rather to know the full history of these buildings, is somehow dangerous. And so whenever I go to, you know, I'm doing a, a, a tour of, of buildings, it's trying to give people the fullest and roundest picture so they can see the context in which the, the buildings were created. Um, in terms of lectures, I tend, I tend only to give lectures about books I've written on because I feel they're the only things I'm qualified to speak about. So I try and speak about, you know, stuff whereof I know. Um, in the case of Edward I, whenever I talk about him, I tend to sort of um, frame it in the terms that you yourself have chosen in terms of, you know, uh, the great and the terrible. Um, what attracts me to these characters is, is not a sense of... Um, these are people to be celebrated. It's, it's these are people to be understood because of the sheer scale of their impact. 
You know, it's, it's one of the things, I mean, another thing that I, I get asked to talk about a lot, perhaps more than ever the first, is the Norman Conquest. And, I, you know, I'm often asked to sort of pass opinion on it as if I'm a sort of sitting judge. You know, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? And it's like, it's it's a thing. I mean, I can't, I, I'm not there, you know, to, 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 to pass judgment on these people. But what attracts me to these things is the scale of the change that, that is involved. I mean, there are historians that can take a subject um, and say, this is a guy, or this is a woman, or this is an era, and they did absolutely nothing. They did very, very little. But they're so interesting, and they can kind of persuade you of this person's relevance or importance or how they speak. I'm not one of those people, unfortunately. I need something really chunky uh, that has huge impact in order to, to craft a narrative out of it. So I've, I've been attracted to things like uh, the Norman Conquest, Edward I, in Weber the first, it was just that I felt that I'd been studying him as a result of doing the Odes of Norfolk for five years of my life. He'd been this looming presence. And I was doing, I was essentially writing a history of these sort of Wukong parts, you know, these bit part players in the drama who would every 30 or 40 years contribute something that was, you know, arguably lasting or meaningful. But for the most part, we're just kind of like superintending the agricultural assets in East Anglia. Um, so I was aware of the fact that, I mean, some of the things we haven't mentioned about Edward the First, you know, that he conquered Wales, he built the greatest string of castles in Western Europe, he tried to conquer Scotland with hugely um, lasting effects on Anglo-Scottish relations that reverberate to this day. Um, he, you know, uh, he, as we say, he went on crusade, you know, he, he, um, he fathered 18, at least 18 children, you know, all these kind of things that I had been doing medieval history for maybe five 10 years and I hadn't, or maybe the five years at least, and this hadn't been a reign that had been foregrounded to me as necessarily important. I think if you were doing a review of, say you were doing English history at school, medieval history, you'd start with the Norman Conquest. You mention maybe um, the, the early Plantagenets, um, Richard and John. After that, you would just kind of talk about late medieval England, the Black Death, the Wars of the Roses, that would be it. So uh, he, he's not he Edward the first who we're after, after all talking about today is I don't think a famous figure um he had as I say he was the villain in Mel Gibson's Braveheart uh but he didn't get a Shakespeare play written about him you wouldn't talk about him in the way you talk about Henry V he's not familiar in the way that even you know um King John is um and yet one of the longest reigns in English history the English king who traveled more than any other monarch until the invention of the steamship you know he went North Africa, the Holy Land, all parts of Europe, every part of the British Isles, raised the biggest armies, fathered the biggest children. And again, all of this sounds like I am enthusing. I'm enthusing about the impact and, and the, the, the scale of the story. Um, I'm not saying this is therefore a thing to be celebrated. You know, it's just, it's a thing that I can't believe that after 25 years of, of, you know, being around and having had been educated in medieval history for five years, I was unaware of this 35-year-old reign and this, this life that was lived out across this huge canvas that affected so many people, as I say, often, very often to their terrible detriment. Um, so it's just the sort of thing that deserves to be more widely known. Um, thank you very, very much again. Um... It's, it's, it's a, I'm going to go on the limb here and say it's, it's a great book. 
<laughs> okay, we'll stop you there before you say terrible. All right, it's 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 really a worthwhile book um, on, on Edward the First, and I wanted to thank um, uh, thank you very very much for uh, it was extremely fascinating, insightful, and I know there's so much more, but what we try to do obviously is give a a, a, a taste. And, uh, thank you very much for. You're very welcome. It's a, your it's a pleasure.